0: So there is this this connection between the biology of aging and risk of developing alzheimer 's disease, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, diabetes. I could go on and on right um, there's this connection there, and so you know what I'm particularly interested in understanding is what is that connection? what are those mechanisms that, as we age biologically, make us susceptible in function and diseases of old age again, with one important outcome of that understanding being able to modify that biology in a way that delays those diseases and pushes them back as far as possible.
1: That was Dr. Matt Kabeline and this is the Further Health Podcast. Hey there and welcome to the Further Health Podcast. In this show, you'll explore the people and science behind innovations helping humanity enjoy healthier, longer lives. Today, we'll guide you through the latest research and discoveries on living healthier for longer. On average, humans are living longer than ever before, thanks in large part to modern medicine and biomedical innovations. But those extra years, almost decades of extra life, are not necessarily spent in good health. In short, while the human lifespan, how long we live, has increased, the average human health span, which is how long we actually live in good health, has not. As we age, our risk of developing many different diseases goes up significantly. The data shows this to be practically inevitable, whether it be some form of Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, oral disease, kidney disease, diabetes, cancer, the list goes on. The risk goes up. Those extra years, those extra decades of life, well, there's a good chance that you'll spend that time battling one disease or another. But what if it didn't have to be this way? What if we could spend more of those extra years, those extra decades in good health instead of relentless decline. Our guest today, Dr. Matt Cabeline, Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at the University of Washington, where he's the founding director of Healthy Aging and Longevity Research Institute, as well as the founder and co-director of the well-known Dog Aging Project, one of the main topics of discussion today. Dr. Cabelline is one of the most respected leading scientists in the world today, making the case that extending human health span is possible, given what the data from the latest research tell us. Dr. Kabelein joins us today on the Further Health podcast to talk about the Dog Aging Project and his quest to understand the biology of aging so that something can be done about it. So with all that, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Matt Cabeline on the biology of aging and helping people in the near future enjoy healthier, longer lives than ever before. This episode is brought to you by Further Health. People are living longer. But not necessarily healthier. Further Health is a 501c3 nonprofit working to advance promising scientific research, helping people enjoy healthier, longer lives. But all this cannot be done without you. Creating a world where people enjoy healthier, longer lives depends on good people like you to make it happen. And you can help by making a tax-deductible donation. Further Health believes that you have a vital role in advancing this mission. By donating, you'll play this vital role in supporting the research that we cover and help power the hundreds of hours of work that goes into making each episode just for you. So, head on over to furtherhealth.org forward slash donate to make a donation. Again, that's furtherhealth.org forward slash donate. Make your mark. Create a world where people enjoy healthier, longer lives. So I thought we can start from the very beginning and you introduce your friend of your best friend and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? <laughs> uh, probably not particularly
0: well. Um, I, you know, I think when I talk to, 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 to family and and friends about what I work on you know I I tell them that I study the biology of aging and I think you know when I say that a lot of people don't immediately understand what I mean right so what does that mean to say you work on the biology of aging and so you know one of the uh examples that I use that I think resonates really well with with most people is if you think about our pets right pet dogs for example everyone is familiar with the idea and sort of accepts that one human year is about seven dog years, right? And so I think that's a really nice example because then you can ask people, well, what does that really mean to you, right? Chronologically, one human year is one dog year. What does it mean to say that one human year is is seven dog years? And then you bring them around to the idea that what we're really saying is dogs age about seven times faster than people do. And so I'm really interested in understanding the biological mechanisms that cause dogs and other animals And individual people to age at different rates. And then you can talk about why is that interesting and why is it important? But I think it's, I think it's a good place to start to just try to help people to understand that there really is this biology that underlies aging and that we can study it just like we study other aspects of biology, whether it's development or nutrition or disease, right? We can, we can study the biology of aging using those same approaches to understand and potentially actually intervene in that biology.
1: I see. So that, that, that's quite an answer on uh, the biology of aging. Uh, so how from, from your perspective, how would you, let, let's tackle this question. How would you define aging that connects that, what you describe the concepts of biological aging and what is culturally familiar in chronological aging. Yeah. So really good question. And I think this is actually,
0: um, there's layers to this question, I think, beyond even what you're asking, because aging means different things to different people, right? I think to to many people, you know, we immediately think about the negative aspects of aging, right? Increased frailty, increased risk of disease, loss of function. Um, but there are also, you know, very positive aspects to aging, I- improved experience, life experiences, you know, Kids, grandkids, all of that stuff. So, so I think it's important to, to first recognize that. Um, when I'm talking about the biology of aging, you know, I think oftentimes, and, and I do this as well, we tend to focus on those negative aspects of aging. And I think from a health perspective, you know, it makes sense to focus there. So, so one of the things that, that is clear is that as we age chronologically and biologically, our risk of developing Many, many different diseases goes up essentially exponentially. So if you think about the, you know, common causes of death and disability in every developed country in the world, they all share a single greatest risk factor. And it's not how much you eat. It's not whether you exercise. It's not whether you smoke. It's how old you are, right? So there is this, this connection between the biology of aging and risk of developing alzheimer 's disease, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, diabetes I could go on and on right um, there's this connection there, and so you know what i 'm particularly interested in understanding is what is that connection? what are those mechanisms that, as we age biologically, make us susceptible in function and diseases of old age again, with one Important outcome of that understanding being able to modify that biology in a way that delays those diseases and pushes them back
1: as far as possible. Can you sort of like define what, uh, I mean when I mention health span? Sure. So yeah, health span is a
0: super important concept. And I think, um, it's one of those concepts where it's hard to define Quantitatively, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, but it's also one of those things where you know it when you see it, right? So, so by health span, I think most people mean the period of life spent in good health, free from chronic disease and disability. Now that good health is a relative sort of qualitative term that's going to mean different things to different people, but at some level, I think that's a good, I think that's a good definition, um, conceptually. So the idea here by um intervening in the biology of aging is really to maximize health span, to to maximize that period of life that is spent in a high functioning, high quality state, so good health, um, and push those diseases and declines in function back as far as possible. Um, and it's it's useful to Talk about health span and lifespan in the same conversation because everybody knows what we mean by lifespan. That's a very quantitative term, right? It's the length of time from birth till death. Health span is a, is a subset of your lifespan that you spend, you know, in good quality health. And again, that's going to mean different things to different, to different people. So I think of health span as a qualitative concept. Um, we need to be careful a little bit that we don't start trying to talk about health span as a quantitative measure and the science gets the science the, the scientists struggle with this a little bit to be honest with you my colleagues have a hard time you know not admitting that we can't actually measure health span right now we don't have a good quantitative way to measure health span so i think that's i think it's important that we uh we recognize that and admit it and try to come up with you know better quantitative assessments of health um that we can use to really assess whether we're successfully intervening in the biology of aging.
1: And so what thank you for that. What what are some of those quantitative methods that you would you use in practice or try to persuade other scientists in your field uh to use? Yeah, so good good question.
0: Um I would say that uh there are there are many and nobody that we haven't settled on a single set of quantitative measures. One example is uh something called a frailty index. And this has been Mm -hmm. sort of well described in humans for many, many years. So you can do a series of tests uh like for example, walking speed or sit-stand test or grip strength, things like that that a, a geriatrician or a clinician can measure in their office, and then you can come up with a With a score by kind of summing across all of those tests, which will give you what, what's called a frailty score and the frailty index basically is an attempt to assess, you know, what is someone's overall health status based on that, that cumulative scoring index. And so people have developed that for animal models like laboratory mice, and and many people now are using frailty index as one of the assessments of, of function that we can look at. You can look at disease incidence. So what percent of the population has been diagnosed with a given disease by a given age or what's called Comorbidity indices. So comorbidity means having one or more diseases of aging, essentially. Actually, sorry, I should say that more than one uh, disease of aging. And so you can ask how many people in a population at a given age have more than one age related disease. So, for example, have had cancer and diabetes. Um, and you can do that in animal models. And so, uh, so I think it's a, it's a mixture of, Disease diagnoses, functional measures, an emerging concept in the field is this idea of resilience. So can you come up with assays that can measure resilience is the ability to Come back from a stress or a challenge to restart, return to, to what we call homeostasis, right? The sort of baseline function when you've been perturbed. So, you know, I think a really, uh, timely example of a resilience challenge is recovery from COVID-19, right? We've all kind of gone through this pandemic. A lot of people have been infected with COVID-19. Most people eventually recover, but their rate of recovery is quite different. And so you would say people who, you know, Get a mild cold symptoms and, and are back you know to fully functional in three days would be quite resilient whereas people who have long covid uh, are less resilient to covid nineteen and so there is there is a growing interest in trying to measure
1: biological resilience as a health span metric you, you just gave me a whole set of really <laughs> persuasive uh, quantitative measures and, and approaches wouldn't that be a useful substitute, uh, for when we talk about health span or is the concept of health span itself ignoring something more important that is harder, is more difficult to measure?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think, um, you know, one of the challenges is again, health span is a relatively new concept. Uh, so I think if you go look in the scientific literature, you know, before 10 years ago, you probably never heard Health span really referred to, except for here and there. So it's relatively new. People are still kind of figuring out from a scientific quantitative perspective, even what we mean. Uh, but I think it's bigger than that. And this gets to, you know, what do we mean by health? And I, I just think it's really challenging because it is in many ways a personal sort of relative definition. Again, we know it when we see it, each of us individually feeling healthy or feeling unhealthy but it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. And so I think agreeing on a quantitative definition of health span that's going to really apply kind of across the board is going to be very, very difficult. The last thing I'll say is, I think it's also important to recognize that health is is not a continuous variable, uh, at least monotonic. And what I mean by that is, you know, we kind of think of health as declining as we get older, right? I think we would all agree that on average, that's true, but it's not, declining all the time. So you might get very, very sick, right? And then you recover from that and you come back. And so I think you could make an argument that your health went down and then it came back up, right? And and on average, it's going down as we get older, but it's not always going down. And so the question in my mind would be, where do you define health span as ending, right? If we define health span as the period of life spent in relatively good health, you could I think, come up with some quantitative measure that says below this value, let's just say we've got a, a super frailty index, right, that takes into account all these different things we measure. We say it gets below this value, health span's over, okay? What happens if health comes back up and it goes back up? So I just think there's a lot of um, complicated uh, challenges that go along with trying to put a hard number on health span. And honestly, I'm not sure that that's, that that would be valuable to do. I think health span as a concept is quite valuable. I think we can use other metrics like, uh, indices that, that, that integrate over several different measures as proxies for quantitative assessment of
1: health. Does that make I, sense? Yeah, I see. So then l- let's backtrack to the the concept of aging that you just described. Why? How would you get someone <laughs> You know, in their early thirties, you know, in forties and fifties to care about the work that you're doing, studying the biological mechanisms of aging that ultimately give rise to what we traditionally, what we would associate as, um, the diseases and, uh, uh, and ailments that come with aging.
0: Yeah, I think that is the trillion dollar question, right? I mean, I think many of us in the field for many years have been frustrated that it has been uh, somewhat challenging to, to, to generate the enthusiasm among the general public for, you know, this kind of a, approach, what I call the geroscience approach, targeting the biology of aging to keep people and animals healthy. Um, and I, and I honestly, I don't have, I I don't think I have the answer as to why it's been so challenging. To me, it's obvious, right? I get it. So, so I don't quite understand why it isn't easy for everybody else to get it. Um, I think there are many factors at play here. One is, again, it's a relatively new field. So, you know, it's, it, it takes time within the, the biomedical and research community to change minds, to change opinions, to educate. So that, I think that's part of it. I also think that, you know, the, the biology of aging is sort of unique among scientific disciplines in that there, for a long time, this has been the realm of science fiction, right? That, you know, this idea of dramatically extending human lifespans or, you know, even talking about immortality, which I don't like to talk about because I think that distracts from the message. But, you know, we're kind of on the edge of, you know, legitimate scientific discovery and And science fiction. And so I think that there is a, it's, it's hard sometimes to communicate to the general public or even people in the scientific community outside of the field, you know, where that line is. Where is the line between legitimate, rigorous, hardcore science and science fiction? And it doesn't help that sometimes the scientists in the field Step on the other side of that line. Right. So I think that there is this perception challenge that that um, that we're still dealing with. It's getting better. And I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, I see a lot of encouraging signs that the message is getting out there. Clinicians, other scientists, the general public are starting to understand that there is a biology of aging, that it is something that can be modified, that there is the potential to have an impact on health span and, and possibly lifespan that are quite significant and that go beyond you know what what is the realm of traditional biomedical research so so I'm encouraged by that um, I also think you know what I do, and again I don't know how effective it is but but what I try to do is actually just talk about the the statistics and the impact, and you know there are lots of there are lots of ways to um illustrate how targeting the biology of aging is just a much, much more uh, effective and superior approach to promoting health than waiting until people are sick and trying to cure their disease. And so I think, again, intuitively, people can understand that. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could just prevent you from getting Alzheimer's disease than waiting until you have it and trying to do something about it? Um, but, but I think, you know, then actually talking about, you know, what does that mean? And we're not talking about one disease by targeting the biology of aging. We're talking about most of them, right? We're talking about diabetes, dementia, kidney disease, heart disease. Um, and so, so I think making that point, wouldn't it be great if we could keep you from getting all of those diseases until waiting until you had one, right? Or two or three. And, and then I think you can talk about, you know, what that actually means in terms of quality years of life, life expectancy. And again, how much, uh, better and more effective it is to target the biology of aging than to do what we've done for the last 200 years, which is wait until you're sick and try to do something about it. So I kind of like the, the, the phrase 21st century medicine. That's the way I think of it. I think of geroscience as 21st century medicine. It's where I hope and expect that clinical practice will go in this century and to differentiate it from 20th century and 19th century medicine, which is really what we've done previously by targeting individual diseases. And then I also like to sometimes make the point that, you know, we've had a war on cancer for 50 years, 50 plus years now, right? When we started the war on cancer in the 1970s, cancer was the second leading killer behind heart disease in the United States. Guess where cancer is today? the second leading killer behind heart disease in the United States. Well, I don't know about with COVID. We'll see where COVID shakes out. But, uh, um, so look, you can make the argument. We've had billions, literally $6 billion a year goes into cancer research in the United States. We've had billions of dollars put into this war on cancer. And there's been progress. Like, I don't want to minimize the impact of curing any individual's cancer. That's really important to that individual and their loved ones. At a population level, we have failed miserably given how much we've put into targeting cancer. And again, it's because it's just really, really a lot harder to fix a biological, complex biological system like the human body once it's already broken. So so I, I try to, you know, those are lots of different ways of trying to make the point that, um, you know, we really should be paying more attention to this underlying biology of aging that all of these functional declines and diseases to manifest themselves. Because in many ways, that's going to be easier to modify than waiting until you 've got cancer or dementia, which is even harder to fix than 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 cancer you know by probably an order of magnitude it 's
1: much more effective
0: to try and really target that underlying biology
1: it's part of that is also that you know biological aging is is more difficult to see right to witness in you 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 don't really when you have a disease right your disease yeah. incidents you, it's immediately recognizable you can tell a story around that I'm I'm talking about you know in in a cultural context it's yeah how do you even begin to tell a story around someone's biological aging over right a few right years. Yeah, that's a good point. So so I would say a biological aging is really,
0: really easy to recognize. We all can do it, right? We all can look at a person or a dog and say, oh, yeah, that's an old person, right, compared to a young person. I think what you're getting at, though, is more the uh how long it takes to recognize or mm-hmm. to feel the impacts, right? So you're right. You go to the doctor and they say, I, I have bad news. You've got hemangiosarcoma or whatever, right? that's That's right now immediately, oh my God, get that out of my body right so so yeah, there's this sort of instant response that you don't get with with biological aging, and I think you know partly this is that uh, this is true for many aspects of our culture, right just think about about diet, right We know that there is a massive mm-hmm. obesity epidemic in the United States and and other countries. We all know what causes that at least to a large extent right um and yet you know that. Given McDonald's lunch that you want to have today because you're hungry right now, you know, if you do that every day for the next 30 years, that's going to cause health problems, but it's a delayed sort of impact. And I think that's what you're getting at with, with aging that it's, it is a little bit, um, it is a lot harder to get people to take action on something that hasn't happened yet, right? That, that will happen at some point down the road, especially if down the road is decades, right? So. So I think I don't have an answer to that. I think, again, um, you know, you you can get people to recognize the potential long term benefits from targeting the biology of aging and the need to do more in that way. Um, and I think, you know, there may be opportunities here where, again, for, for a big chunk of the general population, lifestyle interventions, we know they work. We know that you can impact your biology of aging and you can increase your life expectancy and health span expectancy by lifestyle interventions. Most people aren't going to do that, right? Or they're not going to do it consistently. Some will, and that's great, but, but a lot won't. So this may be where, um, pharmaceuticals can really have an outsized impact because if we can modulate the biology of aging with small molecules, that's easier, I think, for a lot of people to adopt than, you know, caloric restriction, regular resistance training, you know, a lot of these other things that are just hard. And, and so, you know, I, I there are some people who push back on that and, and say, well, you know, that's just, you know, helping lazy people. I think that's wrong. I, I think that's a real misconception. I think there are many reasons why it's hard for people to adopt healthy lifestyles. Uh um, and it's something we all sort of struggle with. And, you know, we shouldn't uh dismiss the possibility of maximizing health span through through small molecules or natural products or, you know, whatever. Um because everybody, we, sh- we think everybody should go on a diet and exercising. And that's just silly.
1: What's happening in your lab today um, that gets you so excited uh, to, you know, effectively um, spend your entire career on this?
0: So um, I, I guess, you know, just to start big picture, there are really, um, you know, two two aspects of my research that, 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 that really drive me and feed my passion for doing this, right? One is the biology is just super complicated and really, really interesting. And it's just fun to try to understand that. And that's how I got into the field initially, right? It was just, I was sort of, uh, you know, I kind of like solving puzzles and mysteries. And this just seemed like a really, really hard puzzle to solve. So, so that's one of the things that really keeps me going. The other is, um, and, and you sort of alluded to this, um, I feel like as a field, we are really on the cusp of actually making that transition and actually, you know, moving into clinical application and also um, changing the way that clinicians think about it you know, I'm not naive to that, but I think we're really there and I think it will happen. And so that's super exciting. And, 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 and some of what we do in my lab, you know, is right at that cusp. So we do a lot of work on a drug called, called rapamycin, which, which I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about, you know, which I, I feel like is among a, a small number of uh, drugs that are really positioned to be tested clinically for their effects on, on biological aging and potentially have a big impact and so that's really exciting and and to be involved in that that process um you know uh, it, it's hard to imagine me for me it's hard to imagine doing anything you know that's more exciting i think that the the potential impacts are enormous um uh and so you know being in that world right now that that's that's changing rapidly where there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm is it's fun and so that you know that that kind of gets me up in the morning and gets me to
1: to keep doing what I'm doing. I agree. I mean, the prospect of potentially affecting a treatment that gives someone 15, 20% more of their healthy life years, you know, that's, to me, I see that as like, uh, I don't think it's too grand to say, but one of the more high value humanitarian efforts, you know, cause if we, if we're good at, if we get to the point where we can prevent wide scale suffering, you know, decades down the line, you know that that if you want to measure that, that could be in the billions of dollars saved on you know uh, disease treatments. You know at at the at the point and when people are at the most frail, for example. Uh, we, so we mentioned rapamycin, but let's get to that because that's a that's an exciting molecule. Could you describe you know again to the friend of a your best friend, uh, what? What is rapamycin, why are you excited about it, and what do we know about it today?
0: Sure. So rapamycin is a small molecule that um, was actually first found on Easter Island. And it's got a super cool backstory. So I definitely encourage people to look it up if you're interested. But um, it was discovered in soil there from a bacteria. So it's produced by bacteria in the soil. And Easter Island, of course, is also called Rapanui. That's where the drug gets its name from, rapamycin. So it was first discovered on Easter Island and, um, uh, you know, relatively quickly, People noticed that it had some interesting biological properties. And 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 probably the most important one is that if you take rapamycin and, and you purify it from these bacteria and you put it on cells, it slows their rate of cell cell division. And so people got excited about that for a couple of reasons. One is cancer is a disease of uncontrolled cell division. So people thought, oh great, this could be a really powerful cancer drug. And then um, fungal infections are actually caused by uncontrolled fungal cell division. And so it's been studied quite extensively as an, as an antifungal. But it took uh, several years um, for scientists to really figure out how it was working. So the observation was we could put it on cells and it slows their growth. It took a while for people to figure out how it was working. And um, eventually, they nailed down the target in cells that rapamycin was binding to and acting on. And it's a protein called TOR, which uninventively is Stands for target of rapamycin. So they named <laughs> the protein after the drug. Um, and what rapamycin does is it's, it's what's called an inhibitor of TOR. So when you treat cells with rapamycin, TOR activity goes down and TOR is kind of centrally involved in controlling cell division. So this all makes sense, right? It's a drug that inhibits TOR and affects cell division. So why is that relevant for aging? And that's a, that's a different story. And it sort of happened completely independently of the studies on cancer and other uses of, of rapamycin. So several labs um uh around the mid uh, early to mid 2000s kind of all converged on rapamycin and tor as a central regulator of aging independently. And so I was I was involved in doing this in yeast and then there were labs in a nematode worm called C. elegans and other labs in fruit flies and we all were studying aging and independently found that in- inhibiting tor could slow aging and increase lifespan in those very simple organisms. And so that was really exciting because, first of all, these came out of unbiased, completely independent studies. So it's that's kind of the best kind of replication you can get in science, right, when people independently all find the same answer. And the fact that it worked that way in all these different uh, organismal models, so- Gave us the hint that this could be conserved. This could be a shared, common evolutionary mechanism of aging from the very simplest organisms all the way up to the, the most complex. So that was really exciting. And then a few years later, the Interventions Testing Program um, from the National Institute on Aging showed that rapamycin treatment in mice also increased increased lifespan. And since then, many, many labs have shown that not only is lifespan increased, but pretty much every aspect of of health that you can measure. In a mouse during aging is improved, so this really looks like a highly conserved and potent uh, modifier of biological aging and we understand actually a lot now about how it 's working and i 'm happy to get into that, but I think all of this together you know really gives most people in the field a high degree of confidence that rapamycin um, is likely to have similar types of effects outside of the laboratory in more more complicated animals like Companion dogs or people. And so there's a lot of interest now in
1: testing these effects of rapamycin in, in the real world. That's like saying, so let's get into how does it, how, how does it actually work? What are the pathways and what are the mechanism processes, um, that it, it affects?
0: Sure. So I'll, I'll tackle this at two levels. The first, the first way I'll kind of describe this is from, a uh, um, in some ways, a, an evolutionarily evolutionary, Evolutionary perspective. Um, So, you know, if you think back through kind of evolutionary time, there are there are just a small number of really fundamental decisions that every organism has to make, right? And one of those decisions is sense the environment and decide: is it a good time to reproduce or not? And if the environment is not favorable, that's a really, really bad time to have babies from an evolutionary perspective. Because, because again, remember the, the the evolutionary goal is to pass your genetic information on to the next generation so that they can be successful and pass their genetic information on. So, if there's no food around, for example, not a good idea to have babies because you aren't going to have any food to feed them. And so, TOR is is kind of the gatekeeper of that decision. So it senses the amount of nutrients and food available in the environment. It senses other things, but food is probably most important. And it makes the decision grow or don't grow. That Mm -hmm. explains why it's fundamentally involved in cell division, for example. So you can think of Tor that way. And so why is that relevant for aging? Well, it turns out, we think that we know that, that when nutrients are scarce, Tor gets turned down, and that leads to increased stress resistance. So it turns on these mechanisms that allow the organism to survive the, the period of, of scarcity, right? Of nutrient scarcity or, or other types of um, environmental stress. And those that stress resistant state is also associated with slower aging. So this is this is the evolutionary explanation for why something like Tor would be involved in regulating aging in yeast and worms and fruit flies and mice and maybe dogs and people. Because this is a fundamentally important decision that every organism, every cell in organism, in every organism has to make. And Tor is, is really one of the key, uh, gatekeepers in that decision process. So, in some ways, what rapamycin does is it mimics the low nutrient state. So it kind of tricks the cell, tricks the organism into thinking that there isn't much food around, which turns on this stress resistant processes and is associated with delayed rates of aging. So that, that I think is a pretty reasonable explanation for, for why, from an evolutionary perspective, why Tor seems to be important and why rapamycin has these effects. So then the other side of this is, well, you know, what's downstream of Tor? How is so okay, so great. We'll accept that turning down Tor slows aging. How is it doing it? And, you know, that's an active area of research. Um, I don't think there's a simple answer. We know a lot about the processes that Tor regulates that. Um, seem to play a role in health span and lifespan and and I think you can put them in a few bins so so, to put them in the, those bins, one is this process called autophagy, which, if you kind of break that out, means self eating. so this is a uh, cellular process for breaking down damaged or unneeded macromolecules and recycling them. So some people call it the recycling center of the cell so when you inhibit tor, either through nutrient restriction, caloric restriction, or with rapamycin, you turn up autophagy and so the idea here is is that as we get older, there's all sorts of damage that accumulates in our cells, and autophagy is really good at degrading that damage, cleaning it up, and then using the 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 raw materials to build new shiny you know organelles or proteins or whatever um, and that seems to be important for the lifespan effects of rapamycin at least in the simple organisms. Rapamycin also affects mitochondria. Uh, so mitochondria are sort of colloquially referred to as the powerhouses of the cell. This is where the ATP that drives lots of chemical reactions in the cell comes from. So rapamycin um, and and mTOR regulate mitochondria. And this is an oversimplification, but in general, when you treat with rapamycin, you improve Mitochondrial function and we know that declines in mitochondrial function also go along with aging and probably contribute to functional declines during aging. The other big bin that's really important is inflammation. So, um, probably, and this is my, my personal view, which by the way has changed a lot over the last 10 years. I, I, you know, 10 years ago, if you'd asked me how important is inflammation and in aging and the effects of rapamycin, I probably would say, well, it's one of the things, but it's not that important. But I've really come to believe that at least in mammals, um, chronic sterile inflammation that happens uh, with age really drives many of the functional declines and diseases that, that we get. And rapamycin is one of the most potent at turning that off. So it's remarkable in mice. You can see if you take an old mouse and you look in tissues, um, you can see, if you just go from young to old, a dramatic increase in this this chronic inflammatory signaling. You give them rapamycin for eight weeks and it basically shuts it off, turns it back down to young levels. And so I think that that is really um, accounting for... For many of the effects that have been attributed to rapamycin, again, at least in mammals, um, whether, how important that is in simpler, simpler model organisms, I, I'm, I'm less sure of. So, so I think those, those are three big bins though, right? And there's even a lot to unpack there, but I think that's an, it's, it's a, it's a complicated, but still oversimplified way to, to
1: kind of try to present the biology here, which is really, really complicated. We know why that manifests itself. In disease and decline in function.
0: Yeah, so so I would say um, we know. Many of the causes, probably not all of the causes, we know many of the causes of the age associated uh increase in sterile inflammation. And so I wanna take I want to just take a minute and, and differentiate. So when I say sterile inflammation, what I mean is inflammation that's happening in the absence of an obvious pathogen, right? So mm. so inflammation's important, right? This is the response of your immune system to a challenge. If you're infected with COVID-19 or influenza or a bacteria, you want your immune system to respond, but we've seen with age that there's an increase in response of the immune system that that's not a response to an infection. It's a response to something happening, you know, within the body. Um, and so, you know, in some ways you can think of this as a general category of autoimmune disease, right? So mm-hmm. autoimmune diseases increase dramatically with age. Sterile inflammation is is to some extent an autoimmune response it 's the immune system attacking self in some inappropriate way um, and I think that 's an important concept to spend a minute on because, you know, if you talk to people and, and I've done this before, scientists do this all the time. And I think that, that, you know, we've heard a lot about this from public health officials with the the pandemic. People talk about the immune system declining with age, right? You will hear that as a general sort of description. Immune function declines with age. That's half true, right? Your ability of the ability of your immune system to respond to pathogens in general declines with age. But there's this hyperactivation of the immune system against self that goes up with age. So, so it's not only the and, and and those feed off of each other. So it's not only that the it's not that the immune system in general overall necessarily is going down. It's just responding to the wrong stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important concept. And so that's what I mean by inflammaging or sterile inflammation. It's the increase in the immune system responding to the the wrong stuff with age. So why does that happen? And there are several causes, and we don't really know the relative importance of each of these individual causes, but they all probably it's probably different in different tissues, and there, I'm sure there are some here that 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 um, we don't really think a lot about yet. But but it's interesting because if you look at what people think of as what what they call the hallmarks of aging or the molecular mechanisms of aging to some extent, many of those cause sterile inflammation. So for mm-hmm. example, DNA damage can cause inflammatory response. Telomere shortening can cause an inflammatory response. Mitochondrial disruption can cause an inflammatory response. So, so all, I, I think what we're seeing is many of these hallmarks of aging through different mechanisms can turn on this inflammatory response. And that's why we're seeing this increase in sterile inflammation with age. And the last point I'll make on this, which is also really important, the increase in sterile inflammation that we see during aging one of the reasons why that's so problematic is because when you're, when you've got stem cells in this sort of in, inflamed environment, they don't function the way that they're supposed to. So mm-hmm. this, this inflamed systemic environment is actually driving the stem cells to stop working the way that they're supposed to. The other thing it does is it deregulates the microbiome. So people, again, people don't always consider this, but you know, there's this interplay between your systemic immune system and the different microbial communities in your body, right? And the, the gut microbiome, the oral microbiome, the skin microbiome, um, your immune system is always interacting with those, those, uh, microbial communities. When your immune system becomes dysregulated, that dysregulates the microbiome and vice versa. So this chronic in- inflammatory state has far reaching effects, um, that that I think can account for many of the pathological changes that we see during aging.
1: See, so going back to what you mentioned earlier with the uh, mouse studies, with the mice studies, uh, when you introduced rapamycin and you saw the decline in sterile inflammation, how long did that last for, and what what were the variables that you modulated in that study? Yeah. So I'll give you a specific example from my lab. So
0: several people have looked at this, and there are several studies out there. A specific study from my lab, we got interested in looking at the um, changes in the oral cavity with age. So periodontal disease is an age-related disease in in people. Um, Something like two-thirds of people will develop periodontal disease. And the, the clinical Um, features of periodontal disease that a dentist will use to diagnose the disease are really inflammation around the gums, which is gingivitis and loss of bone around the teeth, which is periodontitis. And associated with that is a uh, dysregulation of the oral microbiome. So we got interested in studying this as an age, age age-related disease. A very, very talented student in my lab named John Ahn, who was a dental PhD student, really came up with this idea. He's now an assistant professor at the University of Washington. Um, and so what we did first was to ask, do mice develop periodontal disease with mm-hmm. age? And it turns out they do. So you can see dysregulation of the oral microbiome, loss of bone around the teeth and inflammation of the gums. And the if you look at the inflammatory markers in the bone, you can see an increase in sterile inflammation in the bone. So, So that was encouraging. And then we asked the question, well, can we have an impact on that by targeting the biology of aging? And the tool we used was rapamycin. And so in this particular study, we took um, aged mice. I think they were 20 to 21 months old at the time we started the experiment. So that's like the mouse equivalent of a 60-year-old person, probably, biologically. So they either got control or rapamycin treatment for eight weeks. And then we looked in the oral cavity of those mice at bone, inflammatory markers, and microbiome. And what we saw was that eight weeks of rapamycin was enough to regrow bone around the teeth, to knock down the inflammatory markers in both the gums and the bone, and to remodel the microbiome back to something that looked more like a, a young microbial uh, composition. So that all really, I think, supports the idea that, that relatively short-term, at least in a mouse, rapamycin treatment is enough to reverse clinically relevant features of periodontal disease. And so obviously we're very excited in understanding, you know, is is that also true in people? And John actually is in the process of starting a clinical trial to test this, which is super exciting. I can't wait to see the results of that. So your question about how long does it last how long does it last? Um, we don't completely know the answer to that yet. I, I can tell you that it, it lasts at least as long as the treatment period. So after eight weeks, we still see persistent, some persistent effects on the bone and the microbiome, on the micro, I don't know if we've looked at the microbiome, the inflammation. Um, but you know, is it a permanent sort of rejuvenation? We really don't know at this point how long the effects are. And, and my gut feeling is that um, the persistence of rapamycin treatment will vary a little bit from tissue to tissue, uh mm-hmm. as will the optimal dose. So that's another complexity that we haven't even even talked about. But um but it's an open area of investigation right now.
1: I want to emphasize uh the study particularly with the oral microbiome because when we talk about clinical trials, as you just mentioned, the the current you know way that we do it is to study a particular disease area, right? and introduce uh you you know uh specify the intervention the treatment and test the interplay between the two in animal studies, human clinical trials one, two, and three, uh before we can get to a place where we can say this is now a clinically available treatment for let's say uh periodontal disease. Yeah. Right. And it's much easier to do that than say, this is a drug that treats healthy aging. Well, what does that mean, right? It's such a nebulous uh, concept uh, when you try to bring it to the FDA or whatever uh, regulatory body um, that you're dealing with. So, uh, with that, we, we talked about mice, and you mentioned dogs earlier. And I think that's the reason that most people show up for this right now. <laughs> uh, what's what's happening with dogs in your lab? Can you talk more about that?
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, uh, a couple of things to say on that. I would just want to take a step back and briefly talk about the, the clinical trials, because I actually think this is a little bit of a misperception about how FDA regulates drugs and interventions and what a clinical trial sets out to, to accomplish. So you're right. It can be for a disease. It doesn't have to be. So there's diseases and there are what are called indications, right? And what FDA is really interested in is does an intervention improve quality and hopefully quantity of life for the patients. And so you don't have to have a clinical trial for a disease if you can show that your trial, that your intervention somehow improves quality of life. And that could be pain, for example, chronic pain. So I just think it's, I think it's 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 useful to recognize that because people a lot of times get hung up on, you know, the FDA doesn't recognize aging as a disease. It doesn't have to. You can find conditions that are associated with aging that you can make better. Or prevent and get a drug approved for that. You just have to design the trial in an appropriate way where you can show a quantitative benefit from your intervention that outweighs the side effects. So I just think that's an important concept to, um, to, to clarify. Okay. So what about the dogs? And I think this is relevant to, to the clinical trials because, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we are all sort of familiar with the idea that dogs age about seven times faster than people do. One human year is about seven dog years. So what that means is that you can do clinical trials for age-related diseases or indications about seven to ten times faster in dogs. Um, so that's 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 kind of the the uh, uh, incentive, I guess you, you could say, for geroscience intervention clinical trials in in companion dogs. That's one incentive. I would say the other incentive is I'm a dog person. I love my dog. I want my dog to live longer. And so if I can help my dog and other people's dogs live longer, I'm going to feel really, really good about that. So it's not only about, you know, clinical trials and what we can do for human aging. It's also about improving the quality and quantity of life for dogs. Um, so what are we doing? So first thing I will say is we're doing nothing with dogs in my lab. Um, all of the studies in the Dog Aging Project are companion dogs or pet dogs living with their owners. Um, we do nothing with uh, laboratory dogs. Um, I know different people have different feelings on that, but I, I just want to make it clear that I'm not involved in any way in, in studies with captive dogs. So the goals of the Dog Aging Project um, are really twofold. One is to understand the biology of aging in companion dogs. What are the most important genetic and environmental factors that influence healthspan and lifespan in companion dogs. And that's done through observational longitudinal studies uh, of of aging in dogs. And then the second goal is to do something about aging in dogs. And that's done through clinical trials. And our first clinical trial is a clinical trial of rapamycin designed to answer the question, does rapamycin increase lifespan Mm -hmm. and improve
1: health outcomes in companion dogs? And so what are the health outcomes that you're paying attention to with this study? Right. So um, the study, which
0: is called the Test of Rapamycin in Aging Dogs, or TRIAD, um, is designed with the primary endpoint being lifespan. So we are um, powered to detect a 9% change in lifespan from the treatment. So it's double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial. Um, uh, and as far as I know, this is the only clinical trial – uh, in veterinary or human medicine in a population where lifespan is the endpoint. And again, we can do that in dogs because of the faster rate of aging. The secondary endpoints um, include a whole bunch of age-related uh, health measures. So things like uh, cognitive function, so the dogs get annual cognitive assessments, heart function by echocardiogram, neurological function by neurological exam, activity um, uh Disease incidence, so we're looking at the frequency of diagnosis for for all sorts of different age-related diseases. So the goal is really to try to get a a, a pretty comprehensive feel for whether rapamycin can move those age-related health outcomes um, in in the positive direction. So um, so those are all what are called secondary endpoints because they're not what the study is primarily powered to detect. Although I think we're overpowered for many of those. And then we have what are called exploratory endpoints, which are things like, uh, changes in the microbiome, changes in the
1: metabolome, changes in the epigenome, things like that. So how do people get involved into this project? I know this, you, you mentioned a longitudinal study. Um, so one is how do people get involved and how much time do, do we have left in the project before we can answer those questions of whether this extends healthy aging. Right. So um so people
0: can get involved by going to the website, dogagingproject.org. There's a little purple button at the top that says nominate your dog and that'll that'll get you in. So um and to be clear, uh Most of the dogs in the dog aging project are not, not participating in the clinical trial. So the longitudinal study is much larger than the clinical trial. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's no expectation or requirement that, that people have their dog participate in the, in the clinical trial. Um, uh, and so what we ask owners to do to be part of what what we call the dog aging project pack is to complete a, a survey. We call it the health and life experiences survey, which is pretty extensive. There are, I think, 10 modules. Uh, that are part of that survey to really catalog, you know, what is the existing environment that your dog lives in? What does your dog eat? How often does it eat? Are there other dogs in the household? And what are the prior health um, diagnoses that your dog has had? And if people complete that survey, they are part of the pack. Um, we ask people to upload their veterinary medical records. If they're able to successfully do that, then they become eligible for what we call the sampled cohorts. And that includes a group of 10,000 dogs whose genomes are being sequenced and a group of a thousand dogs who every year their owners will bring their dog to their veterinarian and will collect uh, blood and feces samples to look at at things like microbiome, epigenome, metabolome. Um, So that's really what, what we ask people to do to be part of the study and um you know it's been been fantastic we started out um hoping to get 10,000 people enrolled in the pack and we're up to almost 40,000 um uh so there's lots of enthusiasm there's no limit on how many dogs can be part of the study um and uh and you know we, one of the things we really uh, uh encourage people to do right now is especially if you have a young dog um we need more young dogs to be part of this longitudinal cohort um so that we can really follow them you know over time and, and and get as much information as possible um so when will the study be done <laughs> that's a good question uh i don't think i have an answer to that um you know uh most people don't understand sort of nih funding uh mechanisms but 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 nih grants are typically five year grants so we are right now at the end uh, I'm, i should i shouldn't say that we have one more year left on the first five year grant that's supporting most of the dog aging project. We are in the process of, of submitting what's called a renewal proposal, which if funded, will fund us for, an, for another five years. So sort of a rolling, you know, uh, model here where every five years you have to convince the NIH that you've done enough to deserve, you know, more funding. And I, our hope is that obviously our hope is that the renewal will get funded. I think we all expect that it will. Um, how long it will go beyond that. Uh, you know, it's, it's impossible to say. What I will say is we're already making interesting and important discoveries just on the data that we've collected so far. So so I don't know that, I can't answer the question of when will we know, um, but I would say we're already making important discoveries on the longitudinal study. For the clinical trial, that's a little bit different because a clinical trial has a defined timeframe. So the clinical f- trial Um, runs for three years. So every dog is in the trial for three years. It's a one-year treatment period, two-year follow-up. The trial itself will be complete Three years from when the last dog is enrolled. So the way this works, as, as you, if you really think about how you would do this, right? We have 580 dogs who will participate in the clinical trial, and currently we have nine clinical sites. We're expanding, but right now we have nine sites. So there's just no way you can enroll all 580 dogs at the same time. So it's a rolling enrollment. Once we get all of the dogs enrolled, the study will run from three years from that point. Um and then we'll then we'll know the answer, then we'll unblind and we'll be able to answer the question um so that's the time frame for the clinical trial. We expect you know optimistically to have all the dogs enrolled by end of this calendar year. I think realistically with just the the different stuff that pops up you know April of next year is is probably um a, pr- a pretty good uh hard hard time frame for when we should have everybody enrolled.
1: that's excellent that's a uh... More of an incentive to come back and talk to you about, you know, what, what you're learning and what you have learned uh, so far. So let's uh, jump a little bit into the future, right? let sure. The the clinical trial is complete. Uh, how do you hope to, how are you thinking about responding when the data show that there's not a appreciable effect? And also on the other side, like what if it shows that there's a significant uh, Appreciable benefit. Yeah. Where do you go?
0: Yeah. So it's a good question. I I mean, the, the real answer is I don't know. It's going to depend a lot on context, right? So I think, and I think the reality is there's all sorts of, uh, area in between those two extremes, right? Like what we might see is there's no effect on lifespan, but there are positive effects on, let's say heart function or some of the secondary endpoints. So I think the, the interpretation obviously will depend on what the data actually looks like. The other thing that I think it's worth, um, saying is our clinical trial is not happening in a vacuum, right? In that three to four years from now, there will be other clinical trials of rapamycin. So I mentioned the periodontal disease clinical trial that John is starting. There's a clinical trial out of Columbia on uh uh premature ovarian failure that we'll be mm-hmm. starting. There's a clinical trial in New Zealand on exercise and muscle function in the elderly that we'll be starting. So you know I think the the kind of overall interpretation will depend on all of that data together right so 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 it's hard to say for sure but i also think it is important to recognize that you know the the reason we do this clinical trial is to try to get some certainty around the effects of rapamycin and so if we get to the end of you know of the trial and we look at the data and there's just no evidence that rapamycin does anything beneficial then i think we conclude rapamycin at this dose Probably doesn't do anything beneficial in dogs, right? I mean, I think you have to, you have to respect the data. Um, uh, you also have to recognize though, and again, you know, this is, this is one of the hard things about doing clinical trials. Clinical, clinic, designing a clinical trial involves a lot of guesswork, right? You're, it's, and it's educated guesswork, but you're still making guesses on dose, duration, risk reward. So it's, it, so I don't know what the interpretation will be if it turns out we don't see anything. I think you have to recognize that, you know, a, tr- a clinical trial can fail to hit its endpoint not because the intervention didn't work, but because right. one of your assumptions going in was wrong. Like maybe we picked the wrong dose, you know, or or maybe we didn't treat them for long enough or maybe we treated them too long. So again, Unfortunately, there just isn't a lot of certainty, um, unless you see a, a very strong and, and clear signal. And that, that's possible that'll be the case, but, but we mm-hmm. won't know until we get there. Um, on the flip side, let's say that rapamycin increases lifespan by 15% and, you know, all of the health parameters look, look better. And the dogs that got rapamycin, again, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm a realist. I think that would be really surprising if that turned out to be the case, but that's what we see in mice. So it might happen. Um, then I think you can make a pretty convincing argument that, you know, veterinarians should consider prescribing rapamycin to owners of middle-aged dogs um, if the owners want that, right? Like mm-hmm. I think that that's why we do clinical trials again is to improve uh, clinical practice. And so I think if that was the case, you could make that argument. And I think you could also make the argument that, we really probably should accelerate testing this in people if that's the case. Um, Cause if it works in dogs, it's probably going to work similarly in people. At least that's my view. So, so those would be, I think the messages that, that I would um, try to communicate if that was the outcome of the
1: clinical trial. So you mentioned, so there's a lot of exciting things. It sounds like uh, going on with rapamycin in, in the context of clinical studies. Um, outside of this, Particular topic, are there other areas of research within health span biological aging that you're excited about paying attention to um, that you're watching on the periphery?
0: yeah, I mean I think there's a lot there's a lot of exciting stuff happening. I think you know um, I'm encouraged by the fact that uh there seemed to be some traction among conversations with regulators for human clinical trials around geroscience, not just rapamycin specifically. Probably the most, the most famous and talked about of those is the targeting aging with metformin or TAME trial. That's a really interesting model where the clinical trial is really designed metformin can delay the onset of a second age-related disease in people who have one. So it's what's called a comorbidity trial. So that's encouraging. Um, You know, again, if it was me, I wouldn't have picked metformin for that trial. I would have picked rapamycin, but I totally understand why the organizers picked metformin. Um, So I think that's that's really encouraging. And I think on the basic science, you know, one of the things that's super exciting is there is a proliferation of longevity, what people call longevity biotech companies that have sprung out of the basic science, right? So discoveries Mm -hmm. of basic geroscience, where now companies are forming to try to commercialize those discoveries. And I think the fact that there is this proliferation of companies, I mean, we're talking probably dozens in the last two or three years that have popped up. Um, is very encouraging that, that, that at least some of those approaches will be successful. Now, we could talk about the specific, you know, drugs or, or approaches. There are a couple that I think are worth paying attention to. Um, I think, you know, for a long time, there has been, um, uh, interest and excitement in the field around the idea of factors in circulation that can affect the biology of aging systemically. So, the most kind of famous idea here is this, 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 uh, experiment called heterochronic parabiosis, which I know it's a complicated word. What it really means is surgically connecting two animals where one of the animals is young and one of the animals is old, but they share the same circulatory system, the same blood. And so this has been done in mice and rats. And what's observed when you do this is that in many ways that, that people have studied, The young animal appears to become biologically older and the old animal appears to become biologically younger. Again, that's a massive oversimplification, but I think it's, uh, I think it's good enough. So, you know, this has sort of hit the popular culture. I know there have been TV shows and movies that sort of, you know, talk about rich People in Silicon Valley or in other other countries, you know, getting blood from young people and and things like that. But the biology is super interesting, you know, taking aside the entertainment value. Um, and so there are laboratories and companies that I think are starting to hone in on what some of the specific factors are that are in the circulatory system of a young animal that might be beneficial for an old animal, and vice versa, some of the things in the old animal that might be detrimental for the young animal. And if we can figure that out. Right, there's a lot of potential there for moving those into to human clinical testing, and some companies are already doing that. So I think as a general class of investigation, the biology makes sense. We know it's real, and it should be possible to identify those factors. So that's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Um another area that I that I'm you know sort of I'm enthusiastic about it, although I'm less enthusiastic than a lot a lot of people in the field is the um the epigenetic reprogramming uh work that is kind of the new shiny object that that you know that lots of people are uh I would say overexcited about based on the data so far. But the idea here is that um with age uh we know that there are uh Uh, predictable changes in what's called the epigenome, which are chemical marks on the DNA, right? So the genome is the DNA sequence. The epigenome are these chemical marks that kind of go over the genome and regulate which genes get turned on or turned off. And so we know that with age, there's a predictable pattern of changes in those marks in the epigenome. And there are some tools that have been developed that can be used to Reverse those epigenetic changes, so um, people may have heard of the Yamanaka factors that 's mm-hmm. named after Yamanaka, who was the scientist who discovered this and what 's been found is if you take the Yamanaka factors and you put them into cells in culture, you can reverse their epigenetic changes and also revert them back to to what 's called pluripotency, so again turning them back into kind of you know the original stem cell state to some extent so conceptually, it's very sexy, right? The idea is that we have these changes in the epigenome with age. We're going to put the Yamanaka factors or something else back into an old animal or an old tissue, and we're going to reverse aging. And that's where you hear you know, people, in my mind, in intellectually sloppy ways, talk about reversing aging. Mm -hmm. What you can do is you can reverse the epigenetic changes that go along with aging. Nobody's shown that you've actually reversed aging, biological aging, in, in whole right, so so, but that 's the idea, so I think it's promising. Um, there have been some studies now that that show that in mice you can turn these epigenetic reprogramming factors on transiently and get some interesting effects, um, some regeneration in in places like the eye. Um, nobody has shown yet that you can do this in a controllable manner in a whole animal mm-hmm. and increase either lifespan or really anything substantial in terms of health spend metrics. So the excitement has gotten way ahead of the data in in my view, because nobody's yet really shown you can actually use it in, a, in, a, in an effective way in mice. Um, but the promise is there. I think that there are lots of questions around side effects. Um, you know, people obviously, appropriately so, are concerned about side effects when you're talking about treating a, a healthy person in principle with an intervention. Um, and we know that these Yamanaka factors have really, really, really bad side effects if they are expressed too long or too much or in the wrong place. So, it's, so even if they can work, I think there are questions about technically, is it going to be feasible to control the expression in a in a time frame that, you know, it is reasonable, uh, to have big impacts on aging. So very, very early, but, but, you know, the, it'll be interesting to see where that biology goes. And I think there's reason for optimism and, you know, many people have probably heard of Altos, which is the new biotech company that, um, you know, was, was founded. I don't remember how much they had commitments. Um, Jeff Bezos was one of the big, big founders, uh, but, you know, billion dollars sort of, uh, uh out the gate company and they've recruited a lot of really, really good scientists in the field to come work there. So so I think we'll see how it goes, but but there's a lot of promise there and I think it's, you know, it'll be interesting to see how long it takes and, and how effective that approach is.
1: So many questions and we're coming up on time. So I just wanna ask less than a handful of questions left. Uh we we kind of talked around the process of science a little bit. You'd mentioned that there was a lot more for example there's a lot more uh exciting topics now attracting the attention of not just the science community but the general public and uh the, and, and industry in general and and you alluded to some sloppy thinking you know what what do you see uh, in science today that you think could be improved whether that's a process or interpretation of data or maybe it's even just the public communication i'll let you riff on that for a minute all of it i would say all of it can and and
0: should be improved i think um you know it's hard communicating the field of geroscience or aging biology to the public is hard and it's full of minefields and um i'll be honest with you i think i think sometimes the um, you know there are, there are people who believe the the um, the the ends are more important than the means in mm. in some way. In other words, I think there's some people who feel that overhyping, uh, misleading communication is justified if it engages the public in you know understanding and thinking about geroscience. I understand that um, perspective. I disagree with it, and I think as a field we need to be careful. Not to, uh, do anything to further encourage the, the bad reputation aspects that we already have and the sort of, you know, snake oil connotations. So, so I'm not comfortable with, you know, some of the misleading claims that get out there and a lot of the, uh, rush to market that happens with things like, you know, quote unquote anti-aging supplements, uh, and the messaging around that. So, I would like to see that be improved. I'm also realistic enough to recognize that it's not going to probably be improved because people are making money and people are getting Twitter followers and people are becoming, you know, famous on their podcasts. So there is a reward structure that favors that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. I think it's unfortunate and I I hope it doesn't have sort of long-term damage to the field. Um, On the science side, you know, again, I think, I, I think, we just have to recognize that science in many ways is messy and the system the system does work but but sometimes it takes a while for the the bad data to get washed out and i you know i don't i don't have a great solution to to make the system better necessarily um one thing i w- i would say is is um i'm encouraged by the fact that there's a lot of resources flowing into the field uh both but particularly from private sector and from foundations. And so, um, I don't think it's been announced yet, but, but probably by the time this airs, it, it will have been announced. There's going to be a new, uh, foundation that's putting a lot of money in, into the field. It's my hope that, uh, that, that they will support junior investigators and kind of hopefully change the reward structure. So right now the reward structure for funding, um, really favors high-profile publications, and leaving out data that doesn't fit Mm -hmm. your model, right? And those two are connected because it's easier to get high-profile publications if you leave out the data that didn't fit what you're trying to sell people. And so right now, funding tends to favor people who do that. And I think that's damaging because it misleads the scientific community. Um, So I hope that the the new sort of funders will – Figure out creative ways to bypass that and to to support investigators, particularly young investigators to uh, to do innovative high risk high reward science, but then report the results honestly and, and accurately and I've got some ideas on how to do that, but um, it's probably beyond the scope of what we're talking about now but uh, but I think that that would be really beneficial uh,
1: for for the field and probably for science in general. I see you. So that's definitely a whole other conversation that we'll need to have some other time. It's extremely fascinating. Uh, two more questions. One, where does the general public fit into this? Like if, if you had a megaphone that reached across the world, you know, to everyone that's, you know, listening to a podcast like this or just tangentially interested in, uh, advancing the, the science of biological aging effectively, you know, what, what would you ask them? Did you, what are the set of, uh, decisions or, or uh, actions that you can ask of them?
0: Yeah. So uh, it's a good question. I think honestly, I think one big piece of this is just informing the general public. Honestly, I think if people come to appreciate this idea of biological aging and that that's really what is affect that's the most important thing to impact your health as you, as you go through life. Um, and all of the diseases that you're concerned about, declines in function, that it is something that can be modified, and and we need to figure out that biology in order to effectively maximize your health span. I think if people can understand that concept, mm-hmm. in in some ways, the rest will take care of itself. People should go to their physician and ask about this. Say, hey, I heard this guy Kaberline talking about aging on on a you know on a podcast, and he was talking about rapamycin. Now, their physicians aren't going to know at first, right? But I think the more people who go to their physicians and demand that they start paying attention to geroscience and treating people before they get sick and keeping them healthy, I think that's an important change. And that will help shift the the, the way the clinical community thinks about health. And I, I know this sounds kind of silly, but I think also... You know, communicating with policymakers. So, you know, we have elected officials and it's our elected officials who determine how much money goes to NIH and where that money goes. And communicating the importance of of the the sort of geroscience approach to your elected officials is really, really important. And just to give you an an, an example, so most people don't even know that the National Institute of Health, which is the biggest funder of biomedical research in the United States, is split up into different sub-institutes. Most of those sub-institutes are focused on specific diseases. So there's a National Cancer Institute under the National Institute of Health. There's a uh, 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 Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute for heart disease. There's a Digestive Disease and Kidney Institute, right, focused on kidney disease. So most of the research funding flows directly to diseases. There's a National Institute on Aging more than half of the National Institute on Aging budget is earmarked for Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. It's earmarked for really trying to cure or honestly what happens, treat the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. So if you look at the federal budget, there's $6 billion a year that goes to studying cancer. There's about $350 million a year that go to studying the biology of aging, even though the biology of aging is the single greatest risk factor for most cancers, Alzheimer's disease, kidney disease, diabetes, heart disease, liver disease. I could keep going on and on. The single greatest risk factor for all of these diseases gets half of 1% of federal funding for biomedical research. It is insane. And so I think if people can understand that, and communicate to their elected officials, this is insane. You guys need to get on this and figure out what to do about it. I think that can have a big effect. And, you know, lots of us are trying to talk. We are having conversations with uh, uh staff members in the offices of, of Congress people. Um, so hopefully that will change. But I think the public can have an impact.
1: To generalize, the whole effort is to grow the attention share and really, you know, direct it towards the biology of aging uh and it's societal and cultural benefits that that uh come downstream that so one well, on this I I hate to ask you to predict the future so I won't. So what I'm gonna ask instead is several decades down the line, you know, at towards the the end of your career, what do you hope will what do you hope the world to look like, at least what do you hope your world to look like? with respect uh, to uh, your research and the field of health span and lifespan in general? Yeah. Uh, uh,
0: it's a great question. It's hard, hard in some ways to answer. I mean, I would say, you know, I would be happy if uh, this is the approach to clinical practice. And what I mean by that is if, It is now the way that everybody receives their healthcare is to target the biology of aging to maximize health span. And I think that's not everybody. Let me say that a different little bit, make a slight change to that. I think we will always try to cure disease, right? Because we're not talking about zero disease and we should always try to cure disease. I guess I would say I want the primary approach to health. To be keeping people healthy by targeting the biology of aging in terms of, you know, specific numbers, uh, that's, that's impossible to say. You know, look, I get, I get, uh, I get flack sometimes from people who think I'm not, you know, optimistic enough. I would love to double lifespan. I would love to increased lifespan by fivefold i'm just realistic enough to say that i don't think that's going to happen given the the pace of of research uh, but i but i think that would be fantastic i think what can happen are are you know significant and what i mean by significant are a couple of decades maybe more a couple of decades of increased health span for the average person i think that's absolutely doable and it's not it's not that far off or unrealistic if Resources are actually put towards accomplishing that. Um, so I would hope that happens. And I'm, I, again, I'm pretty optimistic that it will. I, the, the shift is already happening and I think it's only going to accelerate.
1: No better note to end that on Dr. Matt Cableman, Thank you so much for coming on to our show and hope that we have uh, following discussions because we didn't, we didn't get to <laughs> a lot of things. So, um, very much looking forward to seeing the data that comes out of your clinical trial and as well as the dog aging project. So thank you so much again. Great. Thank you. Hey there, and thank you for listening. If you want to get even more from this episode, head on over to furtherhealth.org to get your show notes and sign up for our periodic newsletter to receive exclusive content and updates. And if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the Further Health podcast on Spotify, YouTube, apple google or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating or review this really helps others to discover the further health podcast and keeps the show going so that we can keep delivering more episodes on amazing health span research just for you so with that until next time be well everyone